I'm Mary Angela Abeo, creator of the Faces of Fortitude movement, which is a safe space for faces of suicide and mental illness to share their stories and help each other heal. And this is Face to Faces, a conversation series featuring people from all walks of life, exploring the real human emotions we're all dealing with as the world around us rapidly evolves. I'm glad you're here with us. Let's lean in. All right. Today's guest is Michael Hebb, who is a trained chef and architect and a TED and TED Med speaker. He's worked closely with the UN and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations, as well as served on the board for local powerhouse startups like Cafe Vita, Creative Live, Theo Chocolates, the Mosaic Voices Foundation. He's an entrepreneur and activist who's described by the New York Times as an impresario and provocateur. And he believes that the dinner table is one of the most effective and overlooked vehicles for changing the world, which I totally agree with. And he created the Death Over Dinner movement, which has changed how the world discusses the end-of-life process. He's also a dear friend and a face in the Faces of Fortitude project. I'm very proud to introduce Michael Hebb. Thanks for being here today. Of course. You know I'll do anything I possibly can for this project. I believe. Oh, well, so I'm excited to have you here. First of all, what I like to do with everybody in the beginning because of the times that we're in, an emotional check-in. How are you doing? How are you handling all of this? Today specifically. Today specifically, yeah, it is a it's a day by day, moment by moment thing. Um, I, I'm doing well. Uh, I've actually felt a little guilty by the f- fact that I'm I've been doing so well in this time, um, being fully aware of how much suffering it's causing. Um, when it, but as it relates to me personally, um, I'm needed a period of time to um, slow down and really focus. Um, And then we'll talk about it. We're about to launch this massive um, platform. And so, um, and it hasn't been much of a disruption. Um, My daughters are happy and healthy. The love of my life is here with me. Um, We're within easy walks to great services. So trying to make the most of it. Well, good. That sounds great. I think I think there are people that share that sentiment because everybody is affected so differently, whether we lost a job or we didn't, or we're still working on the front lines and it's scary and anxiety. So I think um, at this point, we're kind of, most of us are settling into this quarantine life. And so now we're trying to find those silver linings and, and find what's, uh, what's positive. What has been difficult during this time, you know, I know that we're finding the positive, but I'm trying to make this space for people a place where we can all humanize this experience a little bit. And I think knowing that we have, we're each having different difficulties, I think is sometimes validating. Yeah, it's what's been difficult is been thinking, being in touch with, working with, and thinking about people that um, have family members that are dying alone. Um, yeah and that um, people aren't able to gather for memorials and funerals. Um, so that, that has been the, um, the biggest difficult, difficulty for me is really being um, directly aware of those experiences and working with a lot of funeral directors and chaplains 
um, hospice workers um, who and physicians um, in the last few weeks I've been working with an incredible group of end-of-life leaders to think about mm-hmm. what it means to die in the COVID age. Um, and so the, um, the compassion and the feeling that, um, you know, I, feelings I've been having by being um, witness to that has been, you know, the greatest challenge for me. Yeah, I, I, we interviewed uh, Lashana on the podcast last week, and um, she discussed the same, you know, some of her clients, she was not able to be there for. And it's just so it's so difficult. But it also, and this is my next question is, it's also creating us to be uh, situations that we have to be creative. And we have to change how we communicate with people and are there for people. So I'm interested in how your work, whether it's through Round Glass, through Death Over Dinner, through, you know, I know the the uh, Love and Death Conference, how are you having to shift and adjust for this new world that may or may not go back to quote unquote normal, but I know that we are shifting and changing and some of the things we're finding are actually showing, proving to us that we can be creative in what we do. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to say there. Um, what, I mean, one thing that comes to mind immediately is I, I think that we do see the best in humanity in chaos. Um, one of my favorite books is Rebecca Solnit's A Paradise Built in Hell um, about the um, humanity um, cooperation um, and just the our better angels that um, surface during the worst of times. And, um, so, you know, and that's very much, um, I'm, I'm aligned with that and in tune to that. And so I've seen that it, and and it is impacting as we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, my, um, my girlfriend is a clinical psychologist and, you know, she, we were talking to Leslie Hazelton last night. Um, we actually were cooking together. Um, Leslie's a, a brilliant writer and we, Cooked a, we cooked chili rellenos together virtually, um, a recipe that either, neither of us have cooked before, um, which was filled with moments of hilarity. But she is asking Jordana, like, what's it like right now with your patients? And she said that it's really that about half of the people are having a harder time and half of them are actually doing much better. Um, and it occurred, like, there's this incredible quote I found from this um, – a Polish writer, Olga um, Tukarczuk in The New Yorker. Um, and she wrote, my introversion, long strangled and abused by hyperactive extroverts, has brushed itself off and come out of the closet. The virus has reminded us, after all, of the thing that we have been denying so passionately, that we are delicate creatures, composed of the most fragile material, that we die, that we are mortal. Um, I love that. Yeah, it's the whole piece is extraordinary. Um, and so I think that, you know, for somebody who has spent the last 20 years really um, inviting people to have very difficult conversations, um, starting with leaders, um, global leaders and Nobel Prize winners, and then really figuring out ways that I could help everybody have difficult conversations um, and get in touch with their emotions and um, stop repressing the things that we repress that then ultimately kill us. Um, right. To see the 
in this moment, it's not that I think it's easier to talk about death. I think it's harder. Um, I don't have a gleeful um, attitude about now it's time. It's not, it's hard. I mean, it is, and it's, and it go, you need to go more warily into it. Um, but the fact is um, people are sharing their emotions. Um, they are much more in touch with how they're feeling and they are expressing them more openly. Not all people. A lot of people are absolutely more isolated. But um, the fact that certain people, especially with social anxiety, right? Like I walk around the world and I think, oh, this is, this is what it's like when I walk out my door right now to live with social anxiety, like, um, you know, high levels of it, people are right. dangerous, right? If you have, and, and right That's now they are. so important. That's such an important point. The rest of people that don't experience that are now getting it. Yeah. Yeah. People are weaponized. Like, well, yeah, Ryan, um, Ryan, my partner, Ryan was saying that um, we were talking, we, we often bounce off each other how we're doing in this and it's flipped, you know, somebody who has always struggled with depression and anxiety and him, he is dealing with this a lot better than I am because I am this extrovert who often goes to people and needs to bounce things off people and needs to have that social interaction. And, you know, he kind of made a joke of my social anxiety is gone because society is gone. And it's like, it's real. And for me, I'm like, I can't have that love language right now. I can't do these things. And my my therapist who I'm seeing virtually was like, so we need to figure out what you're getting from those situations and why you can't do it for yourself. And I was like, you know, what? And it's real. And so, so many of us are forced to kind of go back inside and have those moments. And then so many people like Ryan are like, see, Welcome to this space that I've been in for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is an extraordinary time for therapy. Um, yes. And it is, it's hard because we're financially, even if you have a job, you're still financially um, less secure, right? Mm. And, and if you don't, and then, um, then how do you prioritize and spend money on that? Um, but what is accessible um, to your therapist and to yourself um, right now because of what we're facing is, um, is an extraordinary opportunity for deep healing, um, and also just support. But yeah. So, I mean, as far as death over dinner goes, um, I got quiet in the beginning, you know, we're here in Seattle and we're like veterans of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, we were on lockdown first and at least being thoughtful first because we needed to be, but, um, it, I went into a period of not knowing how to, um, if I should be talking about my work, if we should be spreading our work, if, um, it's certainly not an opportunistic moment moment. And I really sat with, um, how it would change, um, what we're doing in the world. And for instance, death over dinner, for those of you who are not familiar with it is, um, a simple website that's free. It's always been free. It's a gift to everybody. And it's a little bit like a board game. You put in a little bit of information onto the website why you'd want to have a dinner and it gives you back a script for your evening um, that's, that takes all of the guesswork out of it. Um, and instead of like having the conversation um, in an awkward car ride or on a hike or in a lawyer's office or with your you know oncologist, heaven forbid, 
um, you get to have it while you're like eating roast chicken and drinking (laughs) something that you enjoy drinking. Which is so much more comforting than people realize. Yeah, it really is. I mean, food nourishes us. It reminds us that we're alive. Um, and, um, our, our vigilance, depending upon who we're at the table with, our vigilance tends to be a little bit more, um, you know, as lower and we're able to be more vulnerable, um, around candlelight and a dinner. Um, but you know, the death over dinner was built during a very different time. Um, and then refined during a different time. It was, um, it was created during a time when we denied death as a culture. Um, and it was a wake up, right? The name death in the title is, mm-hmm. is very intentional and people have always wanted to change it. You know, it's like, no, that's part of the medicine. Like we need to wake up. Um, we're not in a period of death denial right now. We're in a period of death saturation. Um, and so I don't like very humbly have been curious if death over dinner is a good solution right now, um, and how we should change it. Um, and so one of the things that we've done, and we've been hosting virtual death dinners. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Just recently I didn't do one for like the first month and a half. And then, um, we decided to, to try it and they're, they're maybe more powerful virtually in some ways. Um, and the, um, the thing that we did to change, um, immediately was instead of, um, like in cards against humanity or other prompt games, you hold onto the cards and you ask a question and you want people right. to respond in the moment. Right. And right. very much with death over dinner, that was the idea. Like we'd ask, you ask a very hard question. Like if you had 30 days left to live, how would you feel? What would you do? Right. Like you want to, to wash over someone. And I was like, n- no surprises right now. Right. People should know these questions well in advance. They should sit with them. And then we'll have a conversation about them. And then there, but there will be no tricky right turns. Um, right. And, um, and so that's, uh, that's one change. Um, and then just, you know, realizing that people are in fight or flight or freeze um, right now. And it's, you, in order to set the container for this conversation, you need to get people um, you know, into a less panic state. Um, and so thinking about how to create even more gentleness and warmth right now, um, because these, knowing the end of life wishes of your loved ones is more important than ever, if harder than ever. So, yeah, it's, you know, I think I told you this, I've been to one of the death over dinner events in person, um, at Terra Plata. And I, uh, I was terrified. Yeah. Um, I was raised in a culture that didn't talk about death. Italians don't talk about it. In fact, it's taboo. And, you know, I had an aunt that died that no one told anyone for six months. Um, they just don't do that. And so I was terrified. It was lovely and it was comforting. I still struggle. I had a friend talk to me about how this friend is in her 20s, talked to me yesterday about changing her will. And I was like, really? And she said, you don't have a will. And I said, no, I can't bring myself to do it yet. It's, I'm still battling that. And so I think when you said the word gentle, I think that that's really, uh, it resonated with me. And I think a lot of people right now, because we're watching people die alone, we're watching um, uh, 
we're considering the fact or know the fact that we're not getting the correct information from our government and officials and um, things are scary. Our future is scary. And um, death has always been scary to me. And so I'm doing uh, a good job of pushing myself into those fearful places a little bit more, but uh, death over dinner makes it really uh, helpful. And I think now that we're moving into this virtual space, which when I interviewed Zach Williams, he made a great comment. He said, you know, what used to be so, harmful to us being in front of our screens is now saving us in so many ways and keeping us connected to the world. And I think that we're finding a more organic, lovely, gentle way to connect with people virtually without making it hateful and mean and um, fear mongering. And I think death over dinner is a great example of how this can be gentle and, and move virtually. So I'm excited at the idea that it's virtual. I, I need to find more out about those. Yeah, well, we're going to be hosting them once a month, and there's many other organizations that are hosting them now virtually, and um, so it's it's exciting to see. I mean, the great thing about Death Over Dinner is that it's an authorless, leaderless movement. We've made it right. just free and available to everybody. But there is, you know, one thing that we do have going for us um, during this time around this important conversation, um, and I think it's true of a lot of important conversations is it is a time where we're collectively um, facing, you know, end of life, right? So yeah. it isn't directional conversation. It isn't a directional conversation. So often, you know, and, you know, for the history of time, except for during these pandemics, um, it has been a directional conversation. Um, the idea that um, I should have this conversation with my spouse I should know what my parents want. Um, I should talk to them. Like my um, father seems like he might be exhibiting some early onset Alzheimer's symptoms. I'm very worried. I want to talk to him now. Um, that's, it's, it is directional. Um, right. And that you have an agenda. Um, you want to get something from somebody else or for your family because you value it, right? That puts pressure on people always has right? right and right now there's actually a moment um and it's going to be gone um i mean we will be able to refer back to it but there's a moment right now where we're all facing it and so we it makes rational sense to probably just about everybody if you said hey let's get our family prepared um Right. You know, let's get our group of friends prepared. Let's do a Friday night Zoom call where we open a bottle of wine or, you know, um, our favorite La Croix and we like do it together. And right. it's scary. And we're all in this and it's the worst time, but it's also the most important time. And let's all do the five wishes together or let's do a conversation project workbook um, or let's do a death dinner or, you know, there's a lot of great resources out there. And there's a lot of pressure that's taken off when we think about the collective. Um, right. And so, you know, I, I, I think like that's, that. that's the only wind we have at our back right now. But <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, yeah, but I think uh, normalizing it is, it, that's part of normalizing it. And I think right now we're all kind of grasping at anything to feel normal again, because th this is a new normal for us right now and we don't have an end date. So to grasp onto what's scary together seems, it's just a lovely it's a lovely idea and thought and actual thing to, to put into practice, you know? Yeah. yeah. So 
for people right now that may be struggling, um, what is it that I know that you said you all were working on something um, that is uh, coming up soon. And I think that um, right now people are looking for new ways to help themselves and to feel comforted. And for me, I'm giving people a lot of, you know, uh, tangible advice because that's all I know as far as how to calm your body, how to calm down during these anxiety attacks. <clears throat> and I would love, I, I, w- I want to look to organizations like death over dinner, like you, like round glass that are doing bigger things to help the collective, because I think each of us can only do as much as, as we are able in our capacity. Yeah. Um, so we are, as you mentioned, we're about to launch a, um, massive project that has, um, been, I've been working on for five years, um, but has really, um, become my central work and the work of round glass um, one of their primary projects at round glass in the last two years um, and that's a project called the end of life collective um, or eol for short um, and i know you got to see a sneak peek demo a few months ago and um, later in april i don't know when this um, will be released but um, beginning of may end of april we'll be starting to um, invite people into the beta um, and then it opens to the public in July. Um, so exciting. Yeah. And what it is, is, um, realizing that there are a lot of great tools and initiatives and service providers, whether it come, whether it is around grief counseling or death anxiety or, um, preparing for end of life or funeral services, palliative care, like the whole continuum of planning to, um, our last chapter to dying to, you know, having a, a person to honor to the grief and bereavement, like very large, large continuum of human life that many of us experience multiple times, right? It's not just our own, it's our loved right. ones, et cetera. We go through this um, continuum and there has been no place for someone to go to find the best service providers, practitioners, the best communities um, to support you. Um, you have to become an expert, right? Even in the space of suicide, right? Or ideation right. or support, like um, you have to become pretty much, is that hotline right for me? Is the Trevor project right for me? Is, you know, like faces of fortitude, right? Like you've got right. to go and find these things. Um, and it's, you're not necessarily, if you're having a hard time, you're maybe not the best hunter, right? Like, you know, the right, right. you want to be hunting when you're not hungry. Right. It's like you don't right. want to, you don't want to be shopping when you haven't eaten. <laughs> right. Um, and so we realize that there needs to be a leveled up space for the best providers all the way across the continuum. And so we built it as um, built on a social network um, platform that's gorgeous, um, really, really um, designed around the user experience um, so that you can find the best practitioners and the best communities, and then you can make a plan um, or complete your plan and have all of the service providers there. Or you can be in crisis and just come on and be like, I'm raising my hand. You know, I've got a loved one in the ICU. I need you now. Make a whole plan for me. Um, And the response has been extraordinary. So we've talked to about 150 end-of-life service providers and organizations and communities, and every single one has said, yes, please. Um, mm-hmm. 
we want this to be um, we want to be a major part of this community. We want our services available here. We want um, our content and um, you know and the best content in, in in the space as well. And it's smart content. So we know where you're at in your journey, um, and a very different information if you're you know dealing with suicide survivorship right. or you're a young family planning for end of life, right? Like right. Different very content. different. Yeah, or you have a fa- you know a parent that's or a spouse um, who's in memory care, right? These are very different um, bits of information, and usually they're all all of this content is pushed together, um, and we've separated it out and made it kind of like the Netflix of <laughs> of, uh, of end nice. of life content. Yeah, so that'll be. I think in- I think what's helpful. Yeah, sorry. Go. No, no, you're good. Go. No, I think what's helpful is that um, I even met some of these people at um, the death over dinner and like people's memorial is a great example. I, I don't have this information of, of these companies and these providers and these organizations. And I was blown away by what they provided, what they did, the information they had. And then I posted, I remember posting something and then tagging them. And then my aunt coming to me and saying, you know, people's memorial is the reason why your grandfather's funeral was as wonderful as it was because it kind of came out of nowhere and they really helped out. And I was like, what? I had no idea. And it just like touched my heart because I was like, this company helped my family and I didn't even know. And now you're putting these all on one place so that we can not only connect to them, but have them as this resource in certain times of our life when we need it. I think it's brilliant. Well, it's also about agency. Um, and, you know, helplessness and hopelessness are two of the great um, maladies of our age, right? Um, and a lot of that has to do with literacy and access. Um, and it's very easy to feel helpless or hopeless um, if you aren't literate around whatever it is. Whether basic mm-hmm. literacy, right? Um, in a in a culture that is all about the printed and written word, if you're not, if you don't have basic literacy, you don't have a sense of empowerment, right? You don't have a sense of having being the agent in your life. Um, and with end of life, um, for so long, because we've there's been a great forgetting about how to do this, like with cooking, um, but a huge forgetting. Um, and what that what that means is that people aren't literate, don't have agency, don't make um, empowered decisions. And then it becomes um, a thing that, you know, works against them, as opposed to an opportunity for even more healing. Now, I don't like this idea of the good death, right? Right, right, right. Like, take the word good, whatever, or dying well. Like, I don't even know what that is. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. But with intentionality, with agency, um, with your eyes wide open, um, you know, with the best services and um, tools available to you so that you can grieve meaningfully um, when you do lose somebody. You know, that's what I'm interested in. Um, you know, there's so much out there right now that people don't know about. Like you can have the ashes of a loved one turned into a diamond, right? You can put them in tattoos like me. You can put them in tattoos. Um, you can have, there's an artist in Brooklyn who paints with ashes, these beautiful I um, love portraits that. of your loved one. I mean, they're extraordinary um, museum quality portraits made with your, the ashes of your loved one. Her name is Heidi Hattree. 
Um, you can have ashes, even if they've been sitting in your, you know, uh, attic or in a bedroom closet for 30 years, something like 3 million or maybe even more like 20 million Americans have ashes from loved ones in a closet somewhere. Really? Uh, yeah. Cause they don't know what to do with them. Right. Um, you can have those turned into beautiful stones where all of the ashes are solidified in this process and everybody's remains looks like a different stone. And so you get like 25 mm. gorgeous stones um, or you can be composted. I <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. And my brother with my brothers, we gave them to all of his Yale buddies and they made a Yahoo map and they travel in their studies now and in their, their work. And there's like this map uh, all over the world where his ashes have been left. Yeah. And it's so lovely to me. Cause it's like, he would not want to be on in a closet somewhere or on an altar, you know? So yeah, yeah I think I love that idea. I love that so much. And that's an, well, that story is an exception, not the rule, right? Your story that right. you just like, and we hold them up and it's like that type of thing should be available to everybody. Yes. Right. And easy. Um, and we should get inspired um, and we should rethink how we do um, a lot of these rituals because so many of them are broken. Um, and not as impactful as we actually need them to be. They're broken and they, they both cause harm or delay healing, in my opinion. Often. And, and yeah. in many cases, um, you know, bankrupt people in the process or at least yes. add additional strain. Um, so yes. there's a lot, like there's the Coffin Club in New Zealand that's now become a thing. It's these, uh, you know, um, uh, 80, 70 and 80 year olds who decided that they didn't want to be robbed blind, um, their families robbed blind for their um, expensive coffins or funerals. And so they created wood shops and they're all over the world now. Um, these collective wood shops where they make their own coffins together and paint them. And you know, that's like, brilliant. I love that. Right. And that's not for everybody, right? You yeah, know, like some no, of this like, stuff is a little Adam's family, but you know, but like, take, <laughs> take your power back. I mean, totally. that's dope. Yeah. I think it's pretty amazing. So that's what I'm interested in is, you know, people that are suffering make sure that we can reduce the suffering. Um, and then just in general, lift everybody else up into a state of agency and empowerment. Um, and, and, you know, we'll take on the end of life frame, like, and let's get everybody doing, you know, helping on the other phases of life. Um, right. <laughs> right. So. Baby steps. But yeah, well, I'm excited for the EOL, EOL platform to come to everyone else's eyes because I, I know that I was really excited about what I saw. So I'm, I, I want to get into these lightning round questions with you. Are you oh, ready yeah, for that? Totally. My, my little, my, my nod to James Lipton is um, necessary. I grew up just loving his, his interview style. So first of all, I'm just asking everyone what your favorite curse word is. Fuck. Yeah. That's the, the common, do you have like a, a phrase that you use it in that you like the most? Not so much. I just think that it has such power when it's used appropriately, even in public speaking. Yes, I totally agree with that. I've had so many people say, are you going to curse in your speech? And I'm like, I mean, most likely I do. Like, <laughs> I yeah. do a lot when it works, you know, <laughs> sorry about it. But so right now, do you have a self-care tool that whether it's a book or 
certain kind of music or a movie that you're going to when you're like, I need a minute or this is rough. Yeah. And it's actually consistent with my routine, even non COVID. Um, I take on average two baths a day. What? That's incredible. Yeah. And I I love that. And they're Epsom salt baths um, primarily, not always, but generally like I go through pounds and pounds of Epsom salts um, and I don't shower. I take baths, um, which is wow. is rare in the culture. It's also rare for men um, to take baths. It's considered a feminine thing, which mm. is so weird. The and, gender, yeah, yeah, but it still really is. Like, it's, <laughs> right, you know, to get and for me, I've always been like, why would I get pissed on by um, a showerhead um, in in this like kind of aggressive downward thing instead <laughs> of luxuriate. In a completely enveloped. I have never heard it explained that way, but nice job! Like, so, I love that. Yeah. So, two baths a day. I, that's my new goal. I'm doing like one every other day right now, just really needing to like exhale and melt into the world at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, but maybe two. I'm here yeah. for it. <laughs> All right. So my next question is, I need you to name three influential people that have inspired you to be who you are today or to just inspired you in general that are not white, cis, straight men. Because, you know, we've got enough of that. Yeah, not white, cis. Um, would a Hungarian Jew count? <laughs> who survived the Holocaust? I mean, maybe. Okay. Um but he's the first that comes to mind is my mentor, Gabor Mate. Um, mm. And I think his work is so important to, should be, I think, uh, required reading for faces um, his, and everything that Gabor does. Um, let's see, who else? Um, my friend, um, Esther Perel, um, the great sex therapist. Um, she's impacted me in a lot of different ways. Uh, the her level of acuity, curiosity, and excellence, um, and her ability to um, it, she'll when she does public speaking, she'll often take five questions at a time and then work an answer out of those five, which is this, this incredible stage dive wow. and a statement of self trust, right? Like. And, and she didn't get there because wow. she was born with it. She like just, you know, I'm sure she's flopped on that many times. Um, and um, let's see, I was really, um, I, my, another friend who I struggle with her organization um, in some ways. Um, there's, but, and it's no longer, I don't think, in the form it was, uh, but um, Nicole Daydon. Um, and, uh, she started OM, um, orgasmic meditation and one taste was her organization. Um, and the fearlessness, um, that she exhibit in the world, um, to, um, show women back to their sexuality, um, Mm -hmm. and to ask men to serve women's sexuality, um, and in, in a, in a daily practice, um, that was not, had, was only about female healing and female pleasure, right. uh, which uh, the orgasmic meditation movement is about. Some, you know, some things I think went awry in the organization itself. But um, you know, I'll give another woman because there's, and it's funny they're all 
sex related, um, which is not the work that I do, but I think it's, there's so much healing potential, um, in our sexuality. Um, and I am so moved to like, I start to cry thinking about it by the women that are brave enough to work in that space, um, because they will be shamed, you know, they will be, they will have death threats. They will have all of those things, right? Because it is scary. We're so men are terrified of women's power um, in in our culture, and especially emanating from their sexual power. Um, right, is terrifying. Um, but Regina Thomas Howard, Mama Gina, who is another dear friend and mentor of mine, um, and her last book was um, New York Times bestseller called Pussy: A Reclamation. Wow. Um, I clearly, I need to read all of these books. (laughs) So, I mean, these women, um, you know, they are, they are sorcerers. They are, they, they are so powerful and so gentle and kind. Um, you know, we need to see leaders like that in this. Right. Well, and I think that have the, the courage to handle and talk, you know, talk about something that, like you said, is so shamed and so scary to so many men and and the patriarchy in general. That um, I've been I've been in a definitely my own um, exploration of body positive, sex positivity, um, relationship, and my own gender in general. And I've been going through this very solo and very by myself, but trying to be outward with my discoveries as I go. And um, it's interesting the responses I've gotten because I think society so in general wants to put us in a box or label us or based on our marriage, based on our partnerships, on our looks, on our outward, fo- on all of these things. And I'm, I'm having fun fucking around with it and finding my way re- no matter what the response is from people. And it's so empowering. But like you said, it's also so scary because I think I'm hitting some buttons with people and I'm learning that I don't owe them anything, uh, any ex- excuses or explanations. I'm just, um, I'm doing it for me. And I think, um, sounds like I have some reading to do with some of these people. So I'm going to jot yeah. those down for sure. <laughs> yeah, they will. And, and Nicole wrote an incredible book and her Ted talks, Nicole, they don't, um, her Ted talk is stunning. Um, so, okay. you know, I mean, I'll add one more because, because I can't resist my, my two greatest teachers hands down are my daughters. Oh, that's good answer, dad. Good answer. <laughs> that's great. And yeah, I think, and they're not going to hear this. It's not, I mean, it's just the truth. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> think, um, watching our children navigate their lives is the best gift as a parent in general. Um, watching yeah. Maddie navigate this this whole quarantine, you know, as an adult and somebody being laid off and just still finding her joy and her herself in it. It's just it's pretty inspiring. So I agree with that statement. All right, your yeah. last your last one. Oh, what? Okay. Great. Let's do it. Um, is if you could have lunch with your younger self, what <laughs> would you tell him? And more importantly, what would you eat? Wow. What would we eat? Hmm. Lunch. We'll get back to the food part. Um, okay. What would I tell him? Well, my younger self um, 
really was interested in um, uh, praise um, in um, in getting press um, mm. in getting noticed um, and I don't and didn't know why right hadn't done the work to understand it's fine to to be interested in those things. They're not even denigrating it. Um, but to not know why, what is moving you or motivating you as you grasp for something. Like I want to grasp for something knowing why I'm reaching for it and then make an informed decision. Um, I was, I wasn't doing that. Um, I, my validation came from external sources, like to get covered by the New York times or someone was literally like, felt like a religious experience but mm. then I just wanted more right, <laughs> like, right. What, um, and what I would tell my younger self is to realize and I might start crying here but um, to realize that it was trying to get the um, appreciation and acknowledgement from two people quite obvious um, my dead father um, and there was no point in doing that, <laughs> right? He, um, uh, he certainly can see me if he's still seeing and feeling things in some way, shape or form. So I don't need to show him external. Like if he's a spirit or a soul, then he can feel right. me from, from that level. I don't need to see it in print, um, or have external validation. And then my mother who, it's just not good at acknowledging. <laughs> she didn't wow, come yeah. from a culture of appreciation. And, you know, here I was still just looking for that love and acknowledgement from my two primary caregivers, but I had externalized it. And once I saw that so clearly and got okay with both my father being dead and my mother just not having those skills, um, and uh, that I stopped caring or grasping. Um, for it. And I, I, I still like to be speaking in front of a large audience and get a standing O. Right? Wait, <laughs> or, of course, of course, but you're not needing it. No, I don't need it. And it doesn't keep me up at night. Um, it doesn't, it's not on my mind. I don't care. Um, it's a lovely thing to have, not a, a thing that I need. Yeah, that's a huge realization. I think so many of us have that lack of, um, you know, like you said, I think you, you phrased it perfectly when you said she didn't have those skills. And I think, um, I think there's a message for me in there for forgiveness. I think for sure, it's something that I, I went and saw a healer recently. Um, and I'd never had and um, they would listen, and hands were laid on me and this shaman looked at me afterwards. And he said, you are so powerful. He said, but you have not let something go. It's old. I don't know what it is, but you're holding on with like white knuckles and anger and you need to let go. And it, it was very mother based and very anger for things that I didn't get or didn't have. And um, I love how you phrased that she didn't have that ability. And I think there's some, there's a message of forgiveness in there of, um, for that and being able to release it. And I think that so many of us carry that into our adulthood and we don't see it until we start 
becoming ourselves and finding ourselves and finding our careers. And then we start holding on to these things and all these traumas start coming out in real life and we have to deal with them in real time. And so I think that's lovely. I'd love that you'd tell yourself that. That question was asked to me in an interview once and I cried during it. Mm. And so I told myself I wanted to ask everyone that because I think it's important to kind of have that. And I learned from everybody's answers, honestly, just like in faces. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I, the, the forgiveness piece is huge. I, um, actually went to the jungle, um, the jungle with Gabor Mate, um, mm. my, the first mentor I mentioned for 10 days to, um, for psychological healing, but also for ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, and the, my biggest takeaway from, and it was the grandest gesture that I had made up to that point in time around self healing, um, and to actually put the value on my own time and to spend the money and to spend the days. Um, and I walked away from that. And one of the experiences where I was able to fully forgive my mother, um, where I saw that what she gave me biologically was enough, you know, mm. Um, the, you know, the flower doesn't blame the seed, like, um, and, and my true mother with ayahuasca, you know, is a very nature based healing modality. And it was like, mother nature was like, I'm your mother over here. (laughs) You know, I can take your mom, maybe not so much Trump trying to put a whole life on top of her own life. You know, she's not responsible for your life. She gave you life. I'm responsible. And you can put as much pain and heartache right into me, and I will take it. I know what to do with it. You're making me teary right now. That's real. That is real talk and so important. And I think... Um, I put so much, um, I feel like we're in a therapy session now, Michael. Thank you. (laughs) No, but I do feel like so much of my energy comes from the universe. I'm such an earth sign and I take so much from the moon and the cycles and in general, and even in this new gender exploration with myself, I'm taking so much of this new masculine side of myself and trying to really hone it. And I found myself hearkening to this woman who, um, I blamed so much of my late finding on it. And in reality, I, lo- I love this visual that you've kind of given me to shift. So thank you. That's, I needed that. We'll, we'll keep discussing this offline because I feel of like course. I might need that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here. I want to wrap it up by just um, having you tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can um, connect with you on social media or on the web and um, to be able to continue the conversation. Yeah. Um, well, the best place very soon will be eol.community. Um, that's her URL. It's not live yet as of today, but maybe as this comes out, there'll be an ability. And if you arrive there and it is asking for an invite code, and we might take a couple weeks as we're um, working through the beta and getting everybody online, um, deathoverdinner.org, um, and then at deathoverdinner on Twitter and Instagram. Um, the parent company for all of my projects is Round Glass, and that's just www.round.glass. And Round Glass is working, end of life is just one small segment of a massive organization working around wellness. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for being here. Please take care of you and yours during this wild ride. Yeah, I can't wait to hang out and give you a big hug as soon as this is over. I miss hugs, for sure. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. 
Bye. Bye. Goodbye to all your listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You're loved. Thanks for joining us for this conversation as part of our Face to Faces series. We hope you'll join and support the Faces of Fortitude community on Instagram at Faces of Fortitude, on Facebook at Faces of Fortitude Portraits, and on Twitter as myself, Mary Angela Abeo. If you'd like to become a face in the project or join me in conversation on the podcast, or maybe you have an idea for a topic we should explore or a person we should interview, please contact us at booking at facesoffortitude.com. And until next time, please have extra patience and kindness for yourself and others.